This is Daryl Chutka. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. I want to take this moment to introduce you to another podcast production, Grit in Medicine. This podcast is hosted by Drs. Anjali Bagra and Susie Moshler. They dive into what growth, resilience, inspiration, and tenacity in medicine means. Today's episode was a special interview with Dr. Esther Chu, an ER physician and health policy researcher. They discuss transforming structures within medicine to build safe, equitable, and dignified workplaces. To find additional episodes, check out the link in the episode description box. Stay healthy and see you next week. Welcome to a special edition of Mayo Clinic Written Medicine Podcast. I'm Anjali Bagra, a Mayo Clinic internist and chair for diversity and inclusion at Mayo Clinic Rochester. And I'm Josh Murphy, chief legal officer of Mayo Clinic. Have you ever wondered what you could do to contribute towards safety, dignity, and equity in healthcare? And have you ever wondered if you might be inadvertently working against those goals? perpetuating inequity in the workplace through your words and actions. Today we're joined by Dr. Esther Chu. Dr. Chu is an emergency medicine physician and one of the founders of Time's Up Healthcare. Dr. Chu, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you for hosting me. Absolutely, it's been an absolute joy and just sharing this with all of our colleagues here. So. We did not intend to welcome you with snow, but I guess we can't fight the weather gods. Um, Tell us something interesting about yourself. Well, one thing I don't share very often is that growing up, I was a synchronized swimmer Mm. and uh, did that pretty intensively through high school and at one point could hold my breath for almost two minutes. Wow. Wow. (laughs) You should be teaching us breathing exercises for sure. That was a long time ago, but... Well, Dr. Chu, you're, you're here today not for synchronized swimming. <laughs> you're here today because you are a national leading voice in promoting gender equity in the workplace. But it hasn't always been that way. At one point, you were an emergency medicine physician, and somehow or another, you've followed a path that has taken you to the place where you are now, where you are a thought leader, an influencer, and have 70 plus thousand Twitter followers. How did that evolution occur in your career and your profile? I don't entirely claim to understand it completely, but I do think that some things came together very nicely that suited my personality and interests. So first of all, I have a research background, so I'm a health policy researcher at Oregon Health and Science University, and so I tend to approach problems analytically and from the data. I am now in my mid-career, and as I left early career and went into my mid-career, those are fuzzy boundaries, but it's clear that I've passed in my mid-career now, I started pivoting less to how to advance and cultivate my own path and thinking about junior people, starting from students, um, even pre-meds onwards, and some of the barriers faced by women and by minorities of any kind. And as I 
paid attention to the data emerging about their paths through medicine and science, I felt that there was something that needed to change. And at the same time, I was doing research that involved health disparities. And I realized that those two paths converged, that some of the barriers to actually achieving equitable health outcomes had a lot to do with the way that we develop, advance, cultivate our workforce as well. And then this medium called Twitter exploded, and I'm not sure why that fit me so well. Mm -hmm. Um, I think part of it is that I am overall pretty shy and introverted, and this was a way that I could be out there but not have to be intensely in the company of others in a way that yeah. I find really sure. exhausting. You know, sure. yeah. I mean, I can I can just sort of dole out messages in mm -hmm. a way that's very controlled to me, um, uh, that is really in my control, and that is comfortable for me, um, and doesn't um, doesn't make um, my shyness a barrier. And so, and I think it also is, uh, I don't know, maybe there's something about communicating in 140 characters or 280 characters that works well for yeah. me. I'm not a novelist, you know, I'm an ER doc, and so sure. we communicate in these kind of efficient ways. So um, everything just, you know, some of it is just luck and timing, but those things came together for me, and uh, for whatever reason, my platform has taken off, and, um, and it's nice to be able to talk about some of the issues that I care about in uh, in in that kind of at, at, on that kind of platform. Sure. Well, certainly you've been an unstoppable force guiding so many of us into how to have conversations around these difficult issues. And these aren't easy topics to talk about, and which is why I think driving through policy and lens of policy is very important. Um, so within our organization at Mayo Clinic, we've had policy around this. Uh, we have processes, and we actually track metrics on sexual harassment. And we are fortunate here to work with a group of leaders and colleagues within HR, legal, compliance and physician leaders addressing this. And I think one emerging theme is role of power dynamics. Um, that's something that seems to be very common in all kinds of um, cases around gender discrimination or sexual harassment or mm -hmm. other kind of discrimination. So in your experience, uh, what is your recommendation to healthcare organizations to lean in and lean around these power dynamics and how do we have those conversations effectively? Yeah, this is uh, really at the heart of the matter. Uh, in the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine report on sexual harassment, they did a really wonderful job of laying out mm -hmm. the antecedents to harassment. And one of the big antecedents is having uh, a system in which you have steep and vertical hierarchies. We mm. know this to be true. You know that's why sexual harassment is so rampant in the military and in healthcare. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, and we can do a lot to try to work within the existing system to mitigate sexual harassment, or we can actually look at the system and realize that we need to do fundamental cultural change. Um, and that's mm. part of the conversation that's happening. Is that well, okay? If, if steep vertical hierarchies are set up for sexual harassment, what do horizontal hierarchies look like, you know? And um, how do you, for example, for a trainee, say a research trainee, create more of a horizontal 
mm-hmm. network of mentors. Um, how do you uh, how do you structure things fundamentally so that your career development and advancement is not dependent on a single person, but that there are actually many paths of mentorship and sponsorship that you can have? Mm-hmm. And some of this is really, I mean, literally flattening things. Um, there should be no single route to advancement, no single person who gets to say pass or or no pass. And so, um, I mean, that takes a huge commitment and buy-in. It takes some uh, trade-offs. I mean, if you create a more horizontal structure, you lose some efficiencies, right? I mean, the most efficient thing is one person calling the shots at that moment because they make the decision. You spread it out and make more team decision-making, make processes more democratic, that you might lose some efficiencies, um, but you have to think of what we gain in terms of uh, of making, of flattening those power hierarchies and making harassment, discrimination, much less less likely. So I think... um, I think we make that conscious trade-off where we can, uh, and um, and literally like reach in and just obliterate that power structure where we can. That's actually um, that's very helpful. You know, calling out a vertical hierarchy earlier on um, in medicine can be very powerful, and I think social media actually allows for that. Right? right? I, I think we have more. Um, junior members and you know I I learn from medical students and residents fellows and my younger Mm -hmm. colleagues and it's not that if you publish 10 papers and you know you have that super mentor supporting you for that work that it'll happen for you so thank you for that I I really like that approach because it's not about looking to change an individual or individuals behaviors Mm -hmm. within the current organizational structure because that's really hard to do. Very hard. Especially when we're talking about people who um, are grown-ups. They are in their 30s, 40s, 50s. It's harder for those people to change their behaviors. Right. If you change the organizational structure, that has a much uh, broader and deeper impact on how people interact with each other. Mm-hmm. So I really like that a lot. Um, I think in general, wherever we can change systems rather than individuals, that is the best investment, honestly, because, you know, I love implicit bias training. I know there are sort of mixed outcomes, but but even if it had the best outcomes, it still ultimately is going from this person to that person to that person to that person. Change, 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 um, multiplied across every organization out there. And then new bodies come in and you have to train those. I mean, it is a super intensive process that... You know, that just uh, how can we do that reliably and maintain those skills for every single person? What if we change the systems so that actually the system itself prevents certain types of behaviors? And we could make room for more diverse skill set in in a setting like that. I'd like to stick with, if I could, um, a discussion about organizations and how they're structured. So at Mayo Clinic and other health care organizations, there are countless amazing, talented employees at the point of care, uh, and we're thankful for them. But all of these organizations also have um, many, many people working behind the scenes, more in administrative roles, whether it's IT, finance, legal, all contributing towards our goal of taking care of our patients. Is Time's Up Healthcare focused more on what happens in the clinical care environment, or is it broader than that? It's broader. It's it, we really consider everybody in healthcare, um, our target population, to be the entire workforce that keeps the 
you know, that delivers health care. So some of that is at the point of contact with patients, but it really is everybody. I mean, um, mm-hmm. we have a lot in common with there are hospitality workers that are involved in the Time's Up movement. And I mean, a hotel, a hospital is basically a hotel where we provide patient care, um, including the, the food service component, yeah. you know, the housekeeping, um, everything. And so, um, yeah, we consider, uh, you know, the people in the cafeteria as much a part of, of of Time's Up Healthcare as um, as the clinicians, uh, really everybody who works in that environment, they all contribute to a culture. They right. all experience um, whatever type of culture that we have set up. They experience the you know the the endpoint of that, and it's tough because if you are that inclusive, I mean, we really are the largest industry in the country, mm-hmm. but at the same time, um, we are one arm of this greater organization called Time's Up Mm -hmm. that is for everybody in every workplace. Um, So it doesn't really make sense to carve out a component of Time's Up Healthcare um, that is that is just for clinicians. It really is for everybody. And in healthcare, you know, it's such an interesting environment, but we we all interact very tightly with one another. We're all codependent, um, whether you're purely administrative, doing coding, billing, administration, or whether you have um, a more clinical uh, role or whether you have to do with sort of the the operations of of just running any building or organization. And if I may add for our listeners, a lot of your co-founding members are administrators, nursing Mm -hmm. colleagues, pharmacists. So it's a pretty diverse group of individuals, uh, which is very refreshing. I think, um, you know, from the get go foundationally, you have a lot of diverse perspective and voice. Um, on your team, and that's very strong. That is the goal. Yes, um, thank you. And just adding up to that, I think one concern that we hear often in healthcare organizations is how to equip women or other minorities in, let's say, male-predominant fields and how to have organizational strategy and individual strategy to prevent and mitigate discrimination in those fields. What would be your recommendation for organizations and individuals? Yeah, I mean, I think it really needs to start at the top. You know, uh, uh, we talk a lot about some things need to be from the ground up Mm -hmm. and some things need to be from the top down. Um, I don't think that we can really tackle these things without a strong commitment from the top and really a meaningful commitment, you know. So I think Mm -hmm. there's a tendency to say, yeah, 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 I realize that's a problem. Here's a bunch of checklist things that we're going to do robotically. Um, And then we've done it, and now I can think about the other things. Um, I sometimes talk about why we don't have in every hospital an office, just a single office devoted to the prevention of mortality, you know? Mm -hmm. And then we don't have to think about it anywhere else because like that office is gonna deal with making sure people don't die. So I can just practice clinically however I want. It's Mm -hmm. like, it doesn't work like that. Everybody in a hospital has to be deeply invested in patient safety and outcomes. And there's a strong corollary with things like discrimination, Mm -hmm. um, bias and sexual harassment. Every single person at every point of contact has to be so committed to making sure that that interaction is safe, respectful, and equitable. Mm-hmm. And if not, um, th- there's no office, no matter how well run that office is, that can achieve that penetrance if not, if if this isn't a central, you know, high priority commitment. Um, and so, and and how do you get that across an institution? I think it really has to be from the top, that kind of consistent messaging. Mm-hmm. When we make a strategic plan from the highest leadership, that's, mm-hmm. you know, safety, respect, and dignity of work that we always talk about in Time's Up has to be coming from the top, 
consistently, routinely, um, without fail. Uh, and I think that's how it starts to penetrate the culture. So what I'm hearing you say is that safety, equity, dignity, inclusion need to be part of the batter, the cake batter, and not just an icing right. on the yes. cake. That's a great um, way to put it. Yes. Yeah. Um, no, that, that's, I, I couldn't agree more with that. So we do have an office, for example, at Mayo. You still uh, need an office. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I'm not the morta- no, but, office of mortality thing was not yeah. to say we don't need an office. I actually do think you need an office, and I think you need experts you yeah. know, who and inform I think the top. It you know? builds commitment, accountability, and a way for us to capture metrics of intervention and efficacy yeah. of interventions. Yeah, and to your point about how leadership needs to be engaged, the leadership of any organization controls what happens in that organization, controls the messaging, establishes the priorities. And so for an effort to work against sexual discrimination, sexual harassment, promoting gender equity, the messaging has to be consistent, pervasive, leadership needs to send a message that it's a priority and not a fad, right. not something that has spun out of Me Too and will be around for a year or so and then fade away. There right. needs to be that sustained mm-hmm. commitment. And that's why I believe it's really important for your C-suite, your highest leaders, to be on board and engaged and working with the office mm-hmm. Absolutely. that promotes um, diversity and inclusion and respect in the workplace. Right. Could I ask you about men? And (laughs) what role do men play in helping us improve the status quo? And how can women effectively engage men so that they can be a part of the positive effort towards achieving these goals? I think this really is an everybody problem. And so even though Time's Up is focused on women of all kinds, we, our ultimate goal is really about improving equity for everybody, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and that is the that is the verbiage on the website. And our goals are are so that everyone in a workplace of any gender gets to experience the benefits of having a diverse and equitable and dignified workplace. Mm-hmm. And I, I one thing we say over and over again is when we have these things, it's not just about bringing up women and making sure they experience a better workplace. When you restructure your workplace and you change your culture, and you change laws so that workplaces are safer and more equitable mm-hmm. and more dignified, more inclusive, more representative, everyone benefits. Um, and really, this is borne out by research. I mean, if you, again, this is well captured in the National Academies report. Um, when, when there is sexual harassment or other types of discrimination, mm-hmm everyone suffers. So it's not just the target of harassment. Their entire working group, witnesses of the harassment, Mm -hmm. suffer. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. The entire unit suffers in terms of productivity, well-being, and actually negative mental and physical health sequelae. And actually, it's like a toxin. The entire organization suffers when Mm -hmm. problems like these are rampant. And so this is an everyone problem, so everyone needs to be part of the solution. And so, um, you know, I think there was this dominant language and approach that it was a woman's problem and women needed to address it. And really, I see it so much as an everyone problem and everyone needs to address it. And everyone wins when we do address it. I mean, who doesn't want to be in an organization where satisfaction is high, where attrition is low, where people feel safe speaking up when they see something that's not working? Um, where uh, productivity is maximized, where collective intelligence is maximized because you have a diverse workforce that is brought in that's not just diverse but also feels fully 
included and at the table and part of decision making. I mean, it's it really is a win-win across the table. And in a corporate America, you know, groups like Accenture and McKinsey have been studying this for mm-hmm. years, and they really show that in every measure of success, in in every category in which every company wants to succeed, whether it's financial returns, high customer engagement. Um, uh, employee satisfaction and creativity and productivity. Every really every your your public reputation. All of these things improve when you have uh, when you have robust diversity, not just in your workforce but in the leadership group. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, uh, Times Up is often seen as this thing for women by women. And I mean, there is a truth to it. It is it is uh, organized and built by women. However, we really see our job. As um, as engaging everybody, yeah. including our male allies and accomplices, as we yeah. like to say, people are really in the work with us, in the work um, to their own benefit, to everybody's benefit. So I, I do think sometimes in these movements we can forget uh, how many strong male allies and accomplices we have. Mm-hmm. But um, but certainly in uh, across Times Up and Times Up Healthcare, we've been very deliberate about highlighting examples of great allyship. Uh, When we launched Time's Up Healthcare, um, part of our opening presentation was a video. It was basically a he for she, you know, male Mm. allies video where we just had prominent men uh, cross roles in healthcare talking about why they were standing up for Time's Up Healthcare. And it was critical for that to be part of our launch because this does not happen with this group working on it or that group working on that group working on it. Uh, we really all have to be in this together for mutual benefit. This episode is sponsored in part by Giblib, G-I-B-L-I-B, an on-demand library of medical talks covering the most important and advanced topics trending in primary and specialty care. Subscribe now to learn from subject matter experts from Mayo Clinic's top conferences. Subscribers to Giblib receive unlimited access to new exclusive content released every week. Learn more by visiting giblib.com slash mayoclinic and use promo code mayotalks to receive one month of free access. That's giblib, G-I-B-L-I-B dot com slash mayoclinic. And I bet you've heard this from other organizations and individuals that there is, and Mr. Murphy can um, chime in, that there is, there is, you know, some level of fear um, that our male colleagues have of interacting with women in the Me Too and Times Up era. What's your recommendation and how have you gone about having those conversations of alleviating some of that fear factor? I think there's always fear when there's uncertainty, and I think in this case, a little knowledge goes a long way. Uh, we work very hard as we're talking about sexual harassment, uh, sexual harassment and discrimination, about being really precise and accurate in our language. And I think the fear is that anything can be perceived as yeah. being sexual harassment or gender discrimination. Actually, that's not true. I mean, there's a legal definition. You know, there are scholarly definitions. Um, they're very exact. So it's not just like, I don't like you, so I think I will invoke this movement. And, mm-hmm. and, and we know, again, from scholarship, the false positives are incredibly rare. Um, right. The false negatives are extremely common. So I think perseverating about the false negatives is 
strange to me. I mean, we know that reported sexual harassment cases are the teeny, teeny, tiny tip of the iceberg. Um, ones that go on to be, you know, to be investigated and then to actually end up uh, with some sort of sanction on the perpetrator is the teeniest, tiniest little bit of that teeny, tiny tip of the iceberg. And so to be so consumed with what's happening at the tip right. um, is, uh, and then and and being like, that's what I'm worried about and not the iceberg, I think mm-hmm. is strange to me and is completely missing the point. And so I think people with those anxieties just have not looked at the problem. And so this is where there's a huge awareness and education perspective, because the minute you realize what the numbers are, you your attention has to go to actually unrooting um, unrooting the, the sexual harassment discrimination that we do not see, that we do not correct. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And in a healthcare setting where so many people that work in that environment are data-driven, what can help is showing them the facts mm-hmm. and the figures and letting them know that these false positive cases are so exceedingly rare. Right. If they're being rational, they really don't have to worry about that. Totally. And it's not like we're saying eliminate all due process. Right. You know, just say the word and that person will be eject, hit the eject button. Like, you know, you we, there are layers and layers to this. There's always due process. There's always, you know, no one anywhere says don't do a thorough investigation. You know, mm-hmm. don't hear from all sides. Don't gather data. Um, you know, we're always saying go through the same rigorous process we always do, mm-hmm. um, but fix this huge upstream problem we have, which is nobody feels safe reporting. Right. That's really what it's all about. So um, I would say if you're worried, um, I mean, and, and still if you're worried after understanding this whole problem, then being worried might actually be a signal to some people that they need to actually look at their behaviors. Like yeah. I, I sometimes wonder right. if that anxiety is, I think I maybe I have this vague free floating anxiety that maybe some of my behaviors are discriminatory. I think in some cases mm. it's a symptom of some inner awareness that maybe needs to come to the surface. But I think in other cases it's, it's simply not fully understanding either the problem or the push to do something about the problem. Yeah, I think having that lens of numbers and a perspective of the tip of the iceberg and what the whole iceberg involves is very important. I know that uh, Mr. Murphy has run some barbershop conversations within our organization to engage men and you know create more comfort around this free-floating sense of discomfort, if you will, around this topic. And um, I believe in your experience, those have been very eye-opening They've there have been really rich conversations, and we've brought together uh, a group of men only for a, what we call a barbershop conversation to talk about these issues around gender equity in the workplace. And um, we've done a number of them now at Mayo. We still have more to do, and the next one scheduled is actually going to involve some of our highest level leaders. And Great. so, really looking forward to that. And what I've what I've found is that men primarily are well-intentioned and Mm well-meaning. But they haven't thought about these issues as much as women have. And uh, the explanation, and I know you're well aware of this phrase, privilege is invisible to those who hold it. Men don't think about gender equity in the workplace as much as women because they're less affected by those inequities. So I think men need to learn more and Mm -hmm. women can help. so that they can play a more positive role in improving the status quo. 
Yeah, exactly. And I will ask people who here is pro harassment. You know, yeah, and I, I have yet to have anybody raise their hands, right. right? But then you ask, okay, so I'm so glad everyone is against harassment and discrimination. You know, you can sort of plug in the phrase, and yeah. then you ask, what have you done recently? A specific example of what you have done, specifically, you know, to, to show that you are anti harassment or anti discrimination. And it's incredibly hard to come up with something you have done. And so you yes. can be think of yourself as being anti these things, but actually you you can't be anti something if there's no action. And right. so at best most people kind of live this thing where inside they know what mm -hmm. they believe in, it never shows itself. And so I think part of this and it sounds like part of your barbershop meetings is getting people activated to take their inner beliefs and bring them to the outside in a very conscious and deliberate way. And convert them into actions. Right. And one of the things we did in these conversations that I think was the most powerful and impactful part of them was, yes, we had the men talk about questions around uh, gender equity in the workplace and um, what are some of the challenges women face that men don't face, and what can men do to help? But what we did was, even though there were no women in the room, we used audio recordings of mm -hmm. women mm -hmm. talking about their own experiences facing microaggressions, facing discrimination, and we just heard their voices. Yeah. And that was something that really activated, yeah. Anjali, to your point. Absolutely. Really activated them because it got to their heart and their gut. I love that. And we, you know, we know about trainings that wrote trainings, online trainings, sort of click-through yeah. trainings aren't very effective yeah. when it comes to sexual harassment. And also people need the narrative. Um, right. mm -hmm. I always say we're not me too, we're times up, so we're very focused mm -hmm. on solutions, but narrative creeps in because our our solutions, our education, our awareness building, our, our action items actually don't stick unless there's narratives. Narrative. I think that's a, a key point of that. And then also giving people space in a room to sort of talk through these issues. Um, because And those conversations are a little bit different every time. That's incredibly powerful compared to um, some, of the, some of the other ways that we've traditionally trained people around these yeah. issues. And talking of narratives and building a vision and uh, having action, what advice might you give to our learners to to wrap their heads around this early on as they are starting their journey? I really want learners to understand that this is a part of our culture right now. Yeah. I think we have an attitude that if it happens, you'll know it and talk to us then, mm. rather than saying, we have this incredible data that it happens to 50% of, for example, f female medical students before they graduate right. will experience sexual harassment. Why are we waiting um, until it happens and they report it to actually provide any support counseling? Um, and why aren't we trying to do more in terms of early prevention? And so I think talking about ahead of time as, as a very strong likelihood this will happen to you. And when it does, here's what we have in place. I think we need to do more anticipatory guidance and counseling. Um, but some of my advice mm -hmm. in terms of addressing it and speaking up is really not to the students or the trainees, it's to the their faculty. faculty. Because in truth, we know that if you're junior in the hierarchy, mm -hmm. uh, you are the, you right now have the least ability to speak up about it. Um, right. In fact, it, we see in many cases you only can lose by speaking up about it. And in truth, we need to be the ones stepping in, recognizing mm -hmm harassment discrimination when it happens, setting a culture uh, for zero tolerance, and mm -hmm. really 
role modeling how you step in and intervene when when something start when an interaction starts to go awry. So I think the onus is on us as faculty. Uh, the awareness, though, mm-hmm. does need to be passed on to the students so that they can uh, they can know sort of what what is the reporting structure? How do I keep myself safe? How do I begin to talk about these things as I move through my career? Right. Certainly, I think we we are responsible, and we are the ones sitting now mid career. Uh, late, advanced, early career to take responsibility. But I love what you said at the beginning of having those horizontal peer groups where you have these discussions. So you're calling it out, you're anticipating it, and you're mitigating it in time before this, you know, happens to you. Totally. And we should routinize these conversations. It shouldn't take a great act of courage yeah. to initiate a conversation around sexual harassment. It should right. be, what you know, imagine a daily or weekly check-in on a team that's rounding. Imagine a grant, you know, a resident conference once a month addressing issues of culture, of discrimination, of harassment, so that uh, raising your hand becomes less of a scary thing. Right. Just like we were willing and expected to talk about patient safety. Day in and yeah. day out. Table stakes. It exactly. should be the same. Yeah, exactly. I think it can no longer be like a hidden curriculum which happens somewhere on the side. It's an explicit part of curriculum essentially. Right. Right. If I could pivot uh, to mm-hmm. policies. So uh, Mayo Clinic has, I think, taken some important steps and helpful steps in strengthening our policies around sexual harassment, gender equity, and our training programs as well. From the perspective of Time's Up Healthcare, what sort of policies do you think are important for hospitals across the country to be thinking about, to be implementing, and then on a slightly broader scale, from a national healthcare mm-hmm. policy perspective, what what is your group advocating for? Yeah, this is all work in development, but I will tell you, um, within specific organizations, the first thing that we're doing is creating these communities, and one of them is our signatory community, and Mayo Mm -hmm. is a part of that. Creating communities where we can share best practices, establish norms and benchmarks. Because right now, although individual organizations have wonderful policies and procedures, we don't actually share them. Mm -hmm. And um, we have, there are certain national resources like EEOC website where you can sort of look for best practices, but really best practices means something different to everybody. And we're remarkably siloed about what we're doing in these organizations. So part of our signatory community Mm -hmm. is to get each other to start sharing some of these best practices. It's delightful to see people excited to share what they're doing well. And it's it's unfortunate that we don't do it more often. Yeah. And perhaps yeah. this is something that could be published as well. Could in the be medical well, published, and I think we can start to get a sense over time. And right now we're 50 signatories. We anticipate yeah. having 100. Congratulations. Thank you. That was a lot of work. But <laughs> yes. have, we anticipate having 100, um, and these are all major healthcare systems and health professional schools um, and community health centers. Um, we imagine uh, within a year or two having a sense of what norms are. Right. And then once we know a norm, which we don't know right now, then we can set a new bar and really push people to have very innovative, comprehensive policies and practices. Um, It's hard to say what those are right now, but that's what we're working towards. And then on a national level, um, Time's Up has a 501c4 arm, a research and policy center in D.C., and they are the ones um, 
creating a, a really broad database of existing laws uh, across both federally and at the state level mm-hmm. um, and able to uh, inform areas where we can improve legislation to support uh, equity in the workplace and safety in the workplace. So one thing, there's a Time's Up New York State, actually, and they pushed to have um, changes in policy around uh, statute of limitation in rape cases. Um, mm-hmm. And we're actually able to work with the governor and get new legislation mm-hmm. passed on the state level that will be a model for other states. Um, something more directly relevant to healthcare organizations, um, the the Impact Lab was able to put on uh, a, um, a community call for Times Up Healthcare, where mm-hmm. we talked about legislation that was that was coming down the pike in the House and likely to go on to the Senate, and within upcoming years could be um, could be showing up in terms of pay equity, um, things that are already happening on the state level, and so things like that allow us to take um, to take laws and respond early to them mm-hmm. um, by incorporating those considerations into our employment culture now, right. or at least mm-hmm. uh, incorporating the idea of upcoming um, legislation that will become norms over the next decade or two decades. And so we're trying to push the envelope by kind of working on on all fronts to um, suggest changes that, um, you know, maybe some employers want to be ahead of the law and really have progressive uh, policies in terms of pay equity, for example, because certainly those laws are coming, so why not do it now? So those are the kind of things that we're working on nationally. Super. Yeah, and and I read in the signatory contract the other... Uh, transparency that Time's Up is aiming for and uh, is sharing data because you know all of us are part of the problem we have shared vision and we want to eliminate it but the reality is that we all face it um, in healthcare I think that's powerful too data across the nation so uh, gosh I, I just am sitting here and I have a long <laughs> to-do list for myself and Good. we could go on forever uh, so but what I heard you say through the podcast uh, is you know, breaking the hierarchy and changing systems and organizations versus individuals, and that we are all part of the problem and we have to be part of the solution. Um, We are almost wrapping up here. What are your strongest takeaways for our listeners? I think the three things I would really draw out is one, this is an everyone problem and we need everyone engaged in the solutions and everyone will benefit. Um, that's all one. It sounded like three things, but that was all one. <laughs> um, I think the, the second thing is let's really keep this conversation alive. This yes. is not a routine conversation for a reason. Mm-hmm. It's uncomfortable. And of course, like anything, the less you talk about it, the more uncomfortable it is. So then we don't talk about it. So then it's really uncomfortable. And what I found is my own muscle memory, my own fitness to talk about this mm-hmm. grows as I talk about it more and more. And I think that's true for every community. So we need to routinize these conversations so that they're not frightening and stigmatizing mm-hmm. and embarrassing. I think we need to mm-hmm. be very matter of fact and talk about it like any other safety and quality issue in healthcare. And I really see this as safety and quality issue. And then I think the other thing is these conversations tend to be so depressing. We talk a lot about... <laughs> how rampant sexual harassment is, its devastating effect on careers, how much discrimination that is, how much it's hard to talk about uh, about change and, and really believe in it. But I really believe change is possible. I am seeing it. The mm-hmm. past three years have been really incredible in terms of the explosion of interest in this topic and the real engagement of organizations like Mayo Clinic mm-hmm. in addressing this problem in bold and innovative ways. And I 
as much as I talk about this really tough and dark mm-hmm. problem, most of my time I feel hugely optimistic about change, and I want people to feel hopeful and feel energized in this work and not discouraged. Yeah. Not discouraged. Well, I would say those feelings are mutual. We are incredibly proud and honored that you know we are partners uh, in this mission um, and it's onwards from here onwards and upwards onwards and upwards well we've been talking about times up healthcare uh, with dr esther chu thank you so very much dr chu for joining us thank you thank you